Welcome to A Woman's Clarity, a new program by C2P. A Woman's Clarity aims to help both women and men in the financial services industry reach their full potential by interacting with like-minded, strong, and motivated holistic advisors. We've partnered within our network of institutional and carrier partners to bring expertise, advice, tips, and more from talented female leaders, professionals, and practitioners from the finance sector. Hi, this is Kirsten Schlumbaum, Vice President of Annuity Sales with A Woman's Clarity for C2P. I am geeking out today. The nerd in me is super excited to have Dr. Daniel Crosby, the uh, Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion with us today. A few weeks ago, maybe a month, time goes so fast, we had Orion on one of our coffee breaks talking about behavioral finance, and I was super intrigued and fascinated by this topic, so I thought, why not talk more about it here at A Woman's Clarity? Because I think it's so impactful for what we do to help both our female and male advisors take our female clients to retirement, hopefully happy, comfortably, and safely. So Dr. Crosby, as we get started, do you mind sharing with our audience more about yourself, how you got involved with behavioral finance, basically your story? Yeah, good to be here, Kristen. Good to good to spend some time with you. So we talked a minute ago, uh, and I I promised I would save most of it for the show. But you know, we share a background in in social science, and you know, indeed, I went to school. My my PhD is in clinical psychology. So, like, I went to school with an eye to becoming a therapist, and with a particular eye to helping women with eating disorders. So I, you know, the the reason I went into psychology as a profession uh, is a, a, a close friend of mine had a had a very severe eating disorder, you know, early in my undergraduate time at college and and she was in outpatient care uh, out in Utah where I where I went to school and I was sort of tasked with um, being her, you know, being being the go between between the, the inpatient facility where she was where she was spending some time and, and her family. And that process was so uh, fascinating to me, was so uplifting to me, seeing her get better. She's doing great now. Oh, but like, you know, seeing, wa watching her get better, watching the process of that healing was, was so powerful to me. And so I knew that that's when I wanted to study human behavior for, for a living. Well, you know, fast forward, I started, I started my doctoral program three days after I, I finished my bachelor's and which is pretty unusual. And so I was, uh, you know, I was done with my PhD by the time I was 27. And I, I just candidly burned out. Like I was probably too young um, when I started, didn't have great boundaries, was taking my work home with me. And it was just too heavy. You know, I mean, I was 23 years old when I started having a full client load and, you know, I mean, being 23 years old, you don't have your own stuff figured out yet. You're trying to help people figure their stuff out. And basically, I just burned out on on the work of, a, of clinical psychology. So somewhere in the midst of that process, though, I came to my dad, who's a great, you know, great guy, great mentor, great great confidant of mine. And my dad is to this day, uh, a financial advisor. And so I came to him and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm burning out. I'm kind of drowning here. 
but I love studying human behavior and I want to do that. I just don't want to do it perhaps in this setting. And he said, well, there's a ton of psychology in my work. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, because I had always sort of thought of my dad as like one part salesperson, one part numbers guy, you know, mm -hmm. like he was a stock picker and an asset gatherer in, in my mind. And so that comment, you know, that sort of offhanded comment from my dad, long story short, like led me down a path to see how much there was psychology in, in his line of work and to understand that a lot of the brilliant insights from, you know, Nobel Prize winning academic lights were not finding their way to my dad, right? We're not finding their way to the desk of advisors um in in north alabama you know where where i grew up and so uh that i sort of made that my mission right like to be this translator between people much smarter than me and advisors who may not have access to sort of practical behavioral insights that's super fascinating but it kind of brings me back to i've met, met maybe a handful of people that went to college to be in financial planning or financial advisor. We usually start somewhere else and we find ourselves here. I, I studied sociology like you and I spoke about before starting the podcast because I wanted to help people. But I realized that I could help more people getting into financial services and then volunteer to help for my social causes that I felt drawn to. And for you being in a, a, a seat helping people with eating disorders, that's draining, especially when you're young and you are trying to figure out yourself. So yeah. that's, that's a, that's a, that's a great, it's a great mission, but you find yourself in a seat now today where you can help people understand how to get to retirement. So can you explain briefly what is behavioral finance to those, if they're kind of questioning what it is and why it's important? Yeah. So the, the Alabama definition of behavioral <laughs> finance, right, is, is basically um, finance that accounts for the messiness of human behavior. Like, okay. I mean, it's a more official definition. But if you if you think about old models, old models of econometrics, they were based on the idea that people always make decisions that are in their best interest and also to always do the right thing. And we know that's not true, right? Like, we know that's not true of the way we eat or exercise or operate with our money or, you know, treat our spouses or a million things like there's there's things that we know that we ought to do that that we don't always do and so behavioral finance sort of studies the messiness of human behavior as it intersects with the world of money so you're saying people don't always make the right decision with money yeah that's <laughs> that's right and in fact people you know it, one of my books my most recent book the behavioral investor i looked at uh, some of the brain scan work that had been done, they'll, you know, hook people up to an fMRI machine, mm -hmm. monitor their, you know, their, their cognitive activity. And what we found in the, in those studies is that money actually has more excitatory power in the mind than sex, death, politics, religion, like kind of all the big ones people get more amped up about money than anything else and because we get excited about it we sometimes make irrational emotional decisions that just brings me back to one one of the reasons i left my first companies is that i was door-to-door -door selling insurance 
And my manager said, you were going to sell this house. And I was in my gut. I was like, I shouldn't do that. And these people were crying because they couldn't afford to buy milk for their children, but they would spend money on insurance with dirt floors and cockroaches doing the dishes. So I, I mean, they made a decision that was actually good for their family, but not a smart financial decision for their family in the current and now. So when we look at behavioral finance, why is it so important to our industry that we actually take the time to understand your research and understand the points that you make in your articles and in your books? Well, you know, the the blocking and tackling of finance is really easy. Like, you know, if you get down to the fundamentals of, you know, protection and investing and saving and things like the fundaments of a good financial life are really, really easy and it's not hard to set them in place. And if you spend a long weekend reading a couple of good books, you'd actually know what you needed to do. Uh, but then implementing them is just enormously difficult. I mean, it's sort of like saying, look, like the fundamentals of, of physical fitness are, you know, move more, eat less, like if you want to lose weight. And yet it's it's hard to lose weight because, you know, chips taste good. And, you know, we know this is kind of true of money, too. Um, it's not that hard to figure out what we need to do with it, but it's very, very hard uh, to get it done. And so the reason behavioral finance is so important is because, first of all, it's the piece that's in our power. When, when people find out that I work in financial markets, I tend to get all kinds of questions about externalities. You know, like, uh, what's the president going to do or what's going to happen with the election or what's going to happen with the war in Ukraine or the spread of the virus or, you know, a hundred other things that are, you know, effectively unknowable and, uh, you know, we can't do anything about. But the things that predict whether or not people cross their financial finish line are, you know, are they maximizing their human capital? Do they have sufficient protection? Are they saving enough? Are they taking the right amount of risk in the market? And I mean, if you get those things right, all of which are in your control, you're gonna get there. And so, it, you know, the reason it's important is first of all, it's the only piece that's in our control. And then secondarily, it's more predictive of, of sort of crossing the finish line than anything else. Right, and that's where I know you spoke with Dave Alston a few months ago, a few weeks ago, regarding our bucket plan process, which is a phenomenal process to help our advisors help their clients cross that finish line. And I love the analogy with physical fitness. It's like, do I want to spend another $200 on a pair of running shoes when I have seven of them in my closet that I do use, but I don't really need a hot pink pair so I can put that $200 towards my savings or paying down debt. It's making a choice, but there are many people out there that say those hot pink running shoes will make me run faster or I'll look cool when I'm running instead of following a process to getting to their savings and retirement. Um, so I love that. I love the analogy. But with our process, I do feel like behavioral finance falls right into what we do. So can you share a little bit more and talk about the difference between a financial decisions that are rational versus that are reasonable? Because I probably am irrational when it comes to running shoes. Yeah. So rationality, <clears throat> you know, rationality in the in the strictest sense is about uh, maximizing utility. Right. So however you want to measure that. 
right? Like if the utility you're measuring is happiness, that's one way to measure it. If the utility you're measuring, usually we're talking about sort of maximal returns. Um, but I think we got to make this distinction about, you know, things that are rational versus reasonable. And I think as advisors, it's important for us to, to make this distinction with our clients because we very seldom make rational decisions, right? I mean, we don't really kind of move through the world in a way where we want to optimize everything, but our financial decisions almost always make sense. So I'll give the example of, I'll give the example of a friend of mine who came to me and made me look really dumb recently. So he came, he came to me a couple years ago. Good friend. Yeah, no, no, it was my bad. Like you'll, you'll see it's, I was the one, I was the one who goofed. Um, he came to me and was, he's 20 years older than me ish, and he is about to retire. And so he said, look, have a look at my portfolio to let me know what you think I, I'm about to retire. So I look at his portfolio, 80 something percent of millions of dollars is in a single stock holding, um, you know, oh, his, his employer. Right. And I was like, oh boy, you know, can't, can't do this. <laughs> you know, and so I came back to him and said, look, you're way over concentrated. You know, this is a bad idea. You know, here's some advisors you can talk to who will help you. Here's an allocation you could run by yourself. Either way, you're going to be better off than what you've got now. So let me know what you decide. So I see him a couple of months later <clears throat> and I say, hey, did you do what I asked you to do? And he says, no. Um, and I sort of start scolding. I'm like, you know, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're being dumb. Like you're being reckless. Come on, man, you're smarter than this. And we get home from this party where I saw him and I fire off all these, you know, articles about GE Capital and Enron and, you know, all these sort of formerly blue chip companies that that tanked. I said, you know, you got to You got to be smarter than this. So I see him a couple of months later. And same thing, he still hasn't done anything. And so finally I go, listen, like what, help, help me understand why you continue to take this extraordinary risk when I know you know better. And he said, look, Daniel, this company gave me everything I have. You know, they sent my girls to college. They made me a wealthy man. They took a, you know, they took a chance on me when no one else would. And what you're asking me to do is to betray this company. So that is a totally irrational decision, right? Like what he's doing is like in the strictest sense, totally irrational, but it is reasonable in a sense that you can kind of understand why he did it. Now, is it still bad, right? Like, is it still maladaptive for him? Yes. But it took me understanding that and sort of affirming that he wasn't doing this because he was dumb. He wasn't doing this because he was obstinate. He just needed someone to listen and to understand and to say, yep, I get it. Like this is couched in, you know, this is couched in the fact that you're a loyal guy and a good guy. And that's reasonable, but it's still maladaptive, right? So we have all these things. I don't think any of us get out of bed to be unreasonable, right? Like, I, you know, you gave the example of shoes. I have a closet full of shoes because when I was a kid, 
I couldn't afford the shoes I wanted. Right. And now I am a pathological shoe buyer. And, you know, I buy, I buy all of the shoes I couldn't right. afford when I was 10 and that I got picked on for wearing cheap shoes. And so like, is that rational? No. Like, is it reasonable? Yes. Is it adaptive? Well, that's where you kind of have to get into it with your advisor and say, hey, can I still retire with my shoe buying habit? I, I think I'm okay, but. Um... Well, that's good because shoes are important. I'm not gonna lie. I love my Sauconies. So mm. um, <laughs> I do have a shoe bias. Now we can talk about rational, we can talk about reasonable, but let's talk a little bit about, and I didn't give you this question ahead of time, but it's just something that kind of popped into my head as we were speaking is like, you're talking about the loyalty and that was a core value to your, your friend, your client, but there's behavioral biases on both the advisor side and the client side. Can you speak to behavioral biases a little bit? Because there is a certain amount of bias that a client might have because they've gotten advice from their second great uncle who had shoes or they had money in a shoe box under their bed, but they died a millionaire. So uh, can you give some example of that and how we overcome that? Because we, we both come to the table with biases, client and advisor. Yeah, so there's, um, <clears throat> I wrote about this in the behavioral investor. There's sort of, there, first of all, there's there's hundreds of biases, right? I mean, there's, there's approaching 200 different cognitive biases that impact the way you spend your money, right? So it would be, <clears throat> we don't have time to get into them all, but you know, there's four kind of big ones. And in that book, I, I kind of break down, look, these 200 kind of load onto four primary biases and their ego, emotion, attention, and conservatism. So before I talk about sort of the, the basics of what those four things are, it has to be said that bias exists because it serves us well in many parts of our lives, right? So uh, biases are just sort of mental shortcuts and they exist to keep us safe or to streamline our lives, right? If you're walking in the forest and you hear a rustling and you jump and you think it's a snake, right? And so you jump out of the way and it's just a stick, right? Okay, like, right, you know, you, you were wrong, but you, you live to fight another day. If it's a snake and you think it's a, if, if it's a snake and you think it's a stick, you, you don't live to fight another day. So a lot of biases exist to, to try and keep us safe or to try and make our lives easier. So ego is just the tendency for us to be overconfident. And there's a couple of different forms of overconfidence. Uh, there's thinking that we're better than other people. There's thinking that we know more about the future than we actually do. And there's thinking that we're luckier than average. All of these can get you in trouble in, in markets, but in life, they're actually kind of good. Like mm -hmm. the fact that we think we're better than we actually are, like we pretty universally think we're, you know, smarter, better looking, whatever, than we actually are. And the net effect of that is to buoy our happiness and to get us out of bed in the morning. Right. And like, that's a nice thing. But if you, overextend that to markets, it becomes problematic. You know, the second one, emotion, right? 
emotion is just this tendency to confuse our, our hearts and our heads and to sort of want to go with our gut rather than going with math. But again, emotion in many respects serves us very well. Like if you're dating and like looking to get married and you, you meet someone and you have a bad feeling about them, like you're probably right and you should probably listen to it. Um, but when it comes to markets, we're wired 180 of how we should be wired. Mm -hmm. And we tend to feel things are most dangerous when they're most safe and, and vice versa. So again, like all of these biases kind of serve us well in, in some ways and not in others. Uh, attention is the tendency for us to confuse things that are loud with things that are likely. So like, you know, a scary news report, you know, re watching a crime drama or something on TV, we start to see, you know, boogeymen around every corner, watching, you know, some markets in turmoil special we tend to forget that markets drop 10% every year uh, on average, you know, kind of thing. Uh, and then the last one is conservatism, which is just our distaste for uncertainty, for loss, for risk. And again, that's a good thing. Like when you're driving, right, you know, it's a good thing to be loss averse and to be risk averse when you're, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're driving or you know when you're operating heavy machinery or something like that but but when you bring it to markets if you're not careful it can lead you to stick that cash under your under your mattress and, and have a suboptimal outcome so those are kind of the big four but they all serve us well or sort of poorly depending on how they're applied and it's important as a financial advisor or as a financial professional to really understand these and help steer or help your client understand how you develop the plan of action for them to move to retirement, to give them the best of both worlds where they can have their emotional reaction, but you're kind of bringing the stability to their plan where they can be a little bit more reactive, but you're bringing the stability to that plan. And when we look at the relationship between an advisor and their client, I think there's a statistic out there that you have worked on or Orion has provided that says that 91% of clients want an advisor who actually listens to them. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's, it's actually an Accenture study that I have made my own Okay. because <laughs> I've quoted it so much, but it was actually from props to Accenture for, for actually doing the study. Um, it was an Accenture study of what people are looking for in a relationship with an advisor. And the number one, the number one, 91% was someone who gets me. And, you know, that's a lot of the work that we do at Orion is to try and arm our advisors with the tools and technology to really understand their clients at, at a deep level. Um, and then number two was someone with whom I share values. So I think it's pretty telling that a lot of what clients are looking for is not the technical stuff and it's not it's not because the technical stuff doesn't matter it's just that the technical stuff is easy to vet like i can if i'm looking at three potential advisors like i can go look at their reviews i can look at their education their years of experience the letters behind their name designations and i can go yeah this you know she's got it or she doesn't like in right. terms of like knowing how to do this job and after that, it's like, do we click? Like, you know, does she listen? 
Um, you know, does she get me? Does she operate from the same ethics that I do? And that's, that's where people I think are most concerned. I think that's a really great segue when we talk about women in finance and we were looking at helping our female and male advisors help more females get to retirement. And over the next several years, there's going to be trillions of dollars rolling over. And with 52% of the population being female, it's important because a lot of times women want to be heard. They want to be educated. They want you to come to the advisor to come to the table that, they, that they've set, not one that's been set for them. And I saw a study and it was just on Elevest. It's like 51% of females are worried about their finances on a weekly basis. 43% of females are concerned on a daily basis. And I know that Orion, along with yourself, you've done research in women in finance and financial services and what they're looking for. Do you mind maybe sharing a little bit more about what your research in behavioral finance has shown with women marching to retirement? Yeah, this we could we could talk about this for a long time. So I might geek out here just <laughs> heads up. So first of all, let me talk about women as the ultimate behavioral investors, because that's kind of my focus. And so when it comes to decision making and behavior and choices, uh, women just dramatically outperform men uh, in both professional and retail or kind of like mom and pop context. So here's here's some of the stats there. OK, so women save more uh, in a fidelity study found that women save more and have better returns. Uh, a famous study by Barber and Odin found that women outperform men by just over 1% a year and, and that women's outperformance grows uh, in down markets. So they're actually, you know, a lot of the source of that, that outperformance is by just having lower drawdowns in down markets. Um, Kiplinger found that they do more research before making an investment. Uh, they're six times less likely to make massive shifts like going all the cash, you know, in a, in a time of fear. Uh, women's investment clubs outperform men's investment clubs by 4.6% a year, which when you think, which when you think that a diversified portfolio gets, you know, seven or 8% a year on average, the fact that women are, are beating men by 5% a year <laughs> is uh, pretty tremendous. And, and Merrill Lynch found that women are less likely to hold a losing investment too long. Uh, they're less likely to wait too long to sell a winning investment uh, or to buy a hot investment without adequate research, like we saw during the pandemic. So, you know, women have this incredible, uh, as a group, have this incredible pedigree as behavioral investors. And yet the perception of women as investors is so bad. Um, American funds found that eight out of 10 women have experienced negative stereotypes about their investing acumen. Uh, in a study of men and women, only 9% of respondents in a fidelity study thought that women would be better investors than men. So this was a study that was 50% men, 50% women, and only 9% of the respondents thought that women would be better investors. So not only do men disparage women's investing acumen, uh, women have internalized a lot of negative talk about their ability to manage money. 
And when it comes to professional money managers, uh, women manage less than 10% of funds and, and only about 2% of assets. And so you've got this weird disconnect where women are the ultimate behavioral investors and yet they're not viewed as such by the industry, by men, or even by themselves. So it's this huge thing that I'm trying to like spread the word about. Well, I probably would go back to a podcast I did earlier that women suffer from imposter syndrome and they don't think that they have the knowledge and the background to make that decision. So from your professional experience, how do we empower more women to feel confident, whether talking with their advisor or they're doing self-managed funds? What can we do as an industry to better serve women? Yeah, so I know that's first, a loaded question and a big question. No, it is a big question. It's a good one. So the first thing we need to do is share the kind of research that, you know, that I just shared here, because I think that, um, you know, you see, let me back up a bit. Girls and boys have total parity uh, in their math prowess up to about middle school when men uh, when young men and boys start to pull away from from young women and girls and when you look at it it's the way that young women are socialized we've sort of socialized women away from stem careers and away from thinking they're good at math and it's not because they're not they're they're totally uh, keeping pace until they're socialized in a new direction so I think, you know, at a, at a systemic or a societal level, we have to be aware of the ways that we're selling girls and women short, and we have to sort of change that conversation. I think we need to tell the story, like tell the story of the, the stats that, that, I'm, that I'm talking about here. Um, and then I liked what you said, I'll let you say it again, the, the part about being invited to the table Say, can you say that part again? Absolutely. We need to go to the table that the women are setting for us and not set the table for them because they want to be educated. They want to understand. They want to be empowered to make a decision. And yeah. I think that's so important. And that should start at an early age. And you're just getting my mind going because Jason Smith, who wrote the Bucket Plan book, has a mission that he wants to write something for a younger audience. And I am wholeheartedly 100% in agreement with that because when I was in high school, I participated in DECA and uh, Business Professionals of America. And that's why I have the business background that I do because it was so empowering to me to get up on stage and, and talk and sell and become a, you know, executive vice president for the group. So I think we need to do more of that at a younger age, 100%. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I liked your, I liked your remarks about the table, setting the table, right? I, I liken it if you'll, you know, tolerate a small digression. My daughter's 13 now, but when she was, she would have been seven or eight. So I took her to the new Braves Stadium here in Atlanta, uh, where where we live. And so I take her to a ball game. I'm a huge baseball fan. And so I take her to a ball game and we're going to see all the new stuff, like all the new restaurants, all the new stores. It's our first time in a brand new stadium. And so we're like, oh, let's check it out. And there was a, uh, a store there that was called like, it was like a little pop-up and it was called Braves Country Girls or something equivalent. And I was like, hey, like, you know, whatever you want, like pick out one of whatever you'd like, I'll get it for you, right? 
And so they have all these pink hats and these jerseys with sequins and all this stuff. And I'm like, anything you want, I'll get it for you. And she walks around the whole store and gets to the end. And when she does, I'm like, what would you like? And she's like, I don't want anything here. And I was like, yeah, what's up? And she's like, I want to wear the one the players wear. And I was like, yep, that <laughs> that makes sense. Like, even at eight years old, she knew that she was kind of being patronized a bit. And she wanted, you know, she wanted to wear the one the players wore. And I, I liken that to the way that our industry has tried to, to approach women about investing in money. I think a lot of times it's patronizing, <clears throat> it's kind of pink washed, and it's it's not respectful of the fact that, you know, 45% of US millionaires are women, mm -hmm. that women are now in college and grad school at a higher rate than men. And so we should be speaking to women and meeting them where they're at, which is in high places and not, you know, crafting this sort of patronizing pink washed nonsense that that, uh, you know, is is trying to make up for years of having ignored women entirely. No, I 100% agree with that because there's a lot of times when there will be a husband and wife couple going in, going into a financial advisor, they'll speak to the male, really not engage with the female. They think they've got a plan in place to move the money. They walk out the door and the wife says, we're not using them. Because really, at the end of the day, the wife is making the decisions. She's the chief financial officer of that household. And the advisor didn't take time to understand her role in financial planning. So I agree with the pink washing. And we have to do the woohoo and the, the wine for women so they understand finances. No, we need to go to the table that they set, listen to the questions that they're answering, and learn what's important to them. And that's one thing we do really well here at C2P with our challenges and priorities worksheet husband and wives both answer. If it's a single person, they're answering, but we're taking into consideration how they feel, what's important to them, and then coming back to the plan and drawing it up for what they need. And a lot of times that's overlooked because maybe the husband has been the, like I'll use my parents as example. My mom raised five kids, my dad worked, but my mom was the decision maker. She was the bookkeeper. So when people spoke with my dad, they thought he was the decision maker. Sales ideas were lost because he didn't speak to my mom. My mom really did covet the purse strings and take care of everything. Yeah. So it's important to understand. And yeah. I do like the color pink for my running shoes, but I don't want somebody coming to me and saying, here's a pink financial plan. We're here, come to our pink party so you can learn about X, Y, Z. That's not my style. Share with me what I need to know so I can get into retirement and do the things I want to do in my go-go, slow-go and no-go years. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You know. My, the, the stats I'm looking at here are from uh, eight years ago now. I'm sure it's higher now. But in 2015, you know, 40% of, of, of households, the woman was the primary breadwinner. And so our industry has ignored women for so long. And I mean, increasingly, half the time or better, the woman is going to be the one who's pulling down more dough. And it's just... Like we have to take each family as an in of one and try and understand who the like the CFO spouse and the non CFO spouse is, or if or if both parties are super interested mm -hmm. in finance, because the idea that sort of the man makes the money and the woman, 
you know, it's just along for the ride is, is deeply insulting and antiquated. It, it, that's so true. Uh, during COVID, there was a little bit of a shift. And I have to look up the statistics because women did stay, stay at home to help with the stay at home orders and take care of families. There was a drop off in like life insurance for a lot of women during the time of COVID. So there is a gap. If 49% of women feel like they're getting the right advice for retirement, we have a, a huge responsibility to understand and help that 51% that are not on the right track to retirement. Maybe they haven't saved enough. Maybe they had to use some to alter their life when COVID happened. But we have to get back to individualizing each person, even if they're a couple. And we also have to understand the mindset. And this could be a conversation for another day, understand the mindset of a divorcee, a widower, because that's a different conversation. And sometimes people say, well, you shouldn't make a decision for six months, but they have to make the right decisions sooner than later. But that's probably a conversation for another day. Like I said, I geek out when I talk about this stuff. So I'm, I'm a proud geek when it comes to this, this kind of information. When, we are, when we're looking at retirement and we're marching to retirement, you've mentioned your book a few times, Behavioral Investor. Um, how, where can our advisors who's listening to this podcast find that? Is that on any major? I mean, Amazon, if you want to make Bezos a little richer, Amazon's probably the easiest. Amazon's probably okay. the easiest way to get. My, my best two books are The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor. And I mean, you can get them any any online bookstore pretty easy. Fantastic. I want to make sure that's a takeaway. So if anybody listening wants to learn more about what you're speaking to, I love, again, it's it's the geek in me that loves to read and get the information, but it's an awesome opportunity for you to get your information out there as well. As we're kind of wrapping up our conversation here today, is there any words of wisdom that you would like to impart for our advisors listening on when they approach women? Like any tips, tools that you'd like yeah, to share? So so one of the things that i love i uh, i think about good advice from a behavioral perspective is like having three three sort of components and i call it my three e's the base of this kind of pyramid is education and women are twice as likely as men to say that they want to be educated about financial literacy so I think education is one of the primary sort of love languages of, of women as an investing class. Women are less overconfident than men, right? Um, they're less egotistical than men as a group. And so they're more sort of amenable to, to learning. And so I think educating is a powerful way um, to, to reach women clients. The second piece of, of this is the environment. Right. So the environment is the portfolio. You know, what's the right mix of assets to help that person take the ride? And when it comes to this, there's there's actually a, a, a decent bit of disagreement uh, about this. But what we find is that historically it's been assumed that women were less risk tolerant than men. And increasingly, we're seeing that go away. And we're especially uh, especially seeing that go away among younger women. Because if you look at people 50 to 90 versus 25 to 40, the older age cohort of women 
is three times less likely to say that they're confident about money than the youngest cohort. So things are starting to change. And so with that increased education, with that increased competent comes, competence comes more ability to take risk. So at the educational phase, reach out, try and reach women. They're, they're hungry to learn. In that environmental phase, make sure you're assessing risk based on the person that's sitting across the table from you and not just sort of some supposition you have about how men and women think about risk. And then the final piece is encouragement. And we also know from research that women are much more amenable to taking advice than men. So they just listen better and, and are, you know, this is the old joke about asking for directions, right? I mean, um, my daughter, I took my six-year-old, took my six-year-old daughter to Miami this year and we were walking to the beach and I knew our hotel was right by the beach and we walked for an hour in the wrong direction before I asked somebody where the beach was and found that it was, you know, this way. It was five minutes from our house and we walked for an hour until I got up the, the you know, the humility to ask somebody. It doesn't happen with women at the, you know, on, on average, the same way that it does with men. So sort of, again, like at every level, whether it's education or environment or encouragement, Women are just candidly better to work with than men from a behavioral perspective. And so if you're approaching the advice game from a behavioral mindset, I think you'll naturally orient to working with women in, in new and, and positive ways. I love the three E's. I mean, really, you're speaking, you're speaking to me. And I love, I love the three E's. I'm probably, you can see on my table reference. I might, I might reference your three E's and things that I do because it is so powerful. So thank you for sharing and really thank you for being here. But in closing, um, any and like besides your books, is there anywhere else our advisors can go to get more information? I think Orion's website also has tools and tips. And yeah, practices. there's there's, uh, there's three places I'd send you. Okay. Uh, one is the books. You've already covered that. Uh, the second thing is I have a weekly podcast called Standard Deviations. I am 254 episodes into that bad boy. So lots of good content for you to go back and check out. And then the third, uh, the third place is orion.com uh, slash practice hyphen management or orion.com slash BFI, like B-E-F-I, like behavioral finance. And there you can go and get access to all our courses. We have all these CE courses on implementing behavioral finance and better communication into your into your practice. And that's all free. Um, you know, whether whether or not you use Orion, that's all free uh, and it gives you great CE. So come and get some free knowledge. I absolutely love that because it's, it's great to read the books. Fabulous. But until you implement it, until you figure out how to put this great knowledge to good use, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. And Dr. Crosby, thank you for being here with me. I probably could pick your brain for hours, but I do know that you have other things on your plate today. So from me to you, thank you for being here. And those listening, thank you for also being here. We've got lots of great resources. Reach out if you want more information and whatever you do today, make it a great day. Thank you.
This recording was created by C2P and is for advisor use only. Opinions of the guests may not represent the opinions of C2P. At the time of delivery and any subsequent publishing, information was deemed reliable but is subject to change by the time of viewing. The contents of this piece include the opinions and projections of C2P Enterprises, are subject to change, and are for informational purposes only. The information provided in this presentation is not intended to be individual investment, tax or legal advice.